Again, I have no idea. What do you think? I'm going to let the sales figures decide. Mm. Bravo. Bravo. little golf clap <laughs> for you. That's an excellent answer. A future in politics I see for you. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Tech podcast, a shared imagined space where readers and writers make meaning together. We're your hosts, Shannon Gareth. Beam me up, Shannon. You've gone total Star Trek there, I see. Well, I hope not, because then we're definitely in the wrong theme, because the theme of this month is romance, not sci-fi. It's a different kind of being transported, but still. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're doing romance, you say? Yes, I'm really excited. So February is that dread Valentine's Day or the best day of the year, depending on your perspective. So we thought we would um, talk about romance and all its different facets in literature. And today we're going to be talking, actually, it's just going to be a general discussion on the genre of romance, where it all started, where it's going to, and all the little bits of chits and chatter that Gareth and I love doing. So let's strap in, teleport me up. All right. Well, we should begin as we begin all speeches. But the word romance, which is an old French word, uh, comes from the Latin romanice, which means written in the vernacular. Now, that's incredibly important. That's going to be really important for everything else we say. So it's writing of the people in the people's voice. That's what romance means. And obviously, well, it's it's shifted out. But the early uh, romance works, early romance, the, the classic novels, um, the Greek novels, ancient Greek novels, there are five of them that uh, still exist. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of others that um, exist in fragments. And uh, the, the particular one, uh, Apollonius of Tyre, I think it is. It's spelled like Tyre, so, but I'm not going to fall down that trick um yeah uh basically has the as we like to say clockwork of modern romance built into it a story of separation adventure and reunion uh and so most of the the sort of the classic tropes of romance were established long long ago i think the oldest one no, it's the first century AD, I think. Oh, no, the first century BC. All right. So that's uh, that's when romance novels got off to their start. So they're before Christ. They're older than Christ. Uh, they're, they're outselling the Bible. They're, they're doing everything right now. Yeah. We'll cut that later. Um, no, we won't. <laughs> so I'm, I'm obviously, I'm just whizzing over this. So those traditions uh, were picked up by the French along with Welsh folklore. And from that, in the 12th century, we get the sort of medieval romance tradition. And I was only going to mention a few people. Chrétien de Troyes wrote five romances, the the sort of the really famous one being Percival. Um, Percival was the first grail story, I believe. Of the Holy Um, Grail? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I had no um, idea. Isn't that interesting? And and these are all, so they're romances of adventure. 
That's, yeah. that's essentially what they are. But they're, they're always built around relationships between men and women and affairs of the heart. Um, and I'd actually recommend uh, Cretien de Troy if you, if you haven't read his stuff. It's actually quite beautiful. Tristan and Isolde. Uh, by Gottfried von Strasberg. I remember reading that at university and, and really loving it. Very, very sad. So uh, what so, is that about? Because that title came up in my own research for this topic. It's a doomed love affair, Tristan and Isolde. It's another of the sort of courtly romances. Um, I actually don't remember the, the details of the plot, but, you know, that's because I read it. 20 years ago, and I can't remember what happened 20 minutes ago. I do remember so, being very affected by it, though. Does that mean at this stage in time of the development of romance, we're still following the tragic arc? So uh, quite common in Greek writing? No, no, not no? necessarily. But but what is important is this idea of adventure, uh, which is very much, I think, part of romance literature, uh, exotic locations, historical fiction, exciting times, all that sort of stuff. Um, it, it has its seeds back here in the 12th century um, and into the 13th. And, of course, what we have, too, uh, the introduction of the character Gawain, Gawain, who in very early Arthurian romances is considered the ideal knight. I think that later becomes uh, Galahad. Gawain kind of slips into a secondary role. But this idea of the ideal knight, when you think about romance fiction... Uh, this is where this idealized uh, beloved, um, because it's not necessarily a man anymore, but this idealized beloved appears. And that's very much a trope of, I guess, what you'd call traditional contemporary romance fiction. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I always thought back in the day, knights were pretty horrendous people. They would go around pillaging villages and pillaging women um, not the type of knightly uh, figure that we see today in romance. Yeah, that came from France. So the Welsh tradition, if you read the books of the Mabinogai, the red and the white books, um, everyone's like, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of nonsense happening. And then, and then essentially in the French courtly tradition, they brought in this idea of this sort of nobility, of a code. And you can see how this would be picked up uh, in contemporary romance around an idealized male, because I suppose, I mean, gents, are we saying that we're more like the Welsh tradition? We're just sort of hulking, you know, oafs that eat mutton and, and say the wrong thing all the time and worse. Uh, and then, and then there's these, you know, idealized French courtly figures who, you know, can dry their own hair and, and don't end up with a wet t-shirt every single episode. Uh, you know, and that's the idealized man uh, that mm. clearly doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Um, so, so then we go down, you know, further into uh, the 15th century, uh, along the English line of the tradition, we get something like uh, La Mort d'Arthur by Thomas Mallory. And uh, this is the origin of my name, Gareth comes from Lamont d'Arthur. It's first mentioned there, apparently a spelling error. 
Um, don't know what he was actually trying to spell, but of course, um, Mallory wrote, you know, it was, again, it was, it was vulgar language. It was languages mm-hmm. meant to be heard. So, yeah, so I come from the romance tradition. Maybe the most romantic thing about me. Um, now, I've got one more really big thing to talk about before I, I shut up for a minute. Because mm-hmm. uh, we're doing all these big things, right? So we've got, you know, the courtly romances and medieval writings. When we think of them, we think of these works. And there's some of it in Chaucer too. And, and so basically... Romance writing, the romance genre, was prevalent at all these times, but I'm going to go one better. Okay. So Arthurian prose romances were influential in Italy and Spain. And in Spain, uh, there was a prose romance, Amadis de Gaula. Amadis de Gaula. Um, and essentially, the, this romance inspired Don Quixote, 1605, which is yeah. seen to be the first modern novel. And so when we talk about the modern novel, the modern novel is arguably, and I don't think it's that much of an argument, is arguably a romance novel. And that takes us up to 1605. That's a lot. Uh, I don't have much more on the history, actually, because basically I just wanted to cover pre-20th century. Um, So romance fell away very much um, in the succeeding centuries and was picked up again in the 18th century. There was a bit of a revival and uh, there's just a few works that are worth noting. One is the castle. Can I ask why it fell away? Oh, things just do, don't they? Uh, There was a sort of a, a French classicism took over. Okay. Um, and it just was out of vogue. Uh, but it made it, made it come back. Um, and, yeah, Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, which is a gothic romance, uh, is, is a very important book in the romantic revival. Another one they got us to read at university and another one I remember liking. I remember we read Otranto and Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. And Northanger Abbey for whatever reason, remains my favorite Austen book. And, and, and now this is lovely. Richard Hurd wrote a book called Letters on Chivalry and Romance in 1762, and he makes a great uh, defense of the value of romance as a, as a genre. And I've got this lovely quote from Britannica, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. So I'm not saying this, so, you know, d- don't blame me. But in the encyclopedia, they said to Hurd, romance is not truth, but a delightful and necessary holiday from common sense. I, I actually really love that quote. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that could offend you. But if you really listen to it, it's delightful and necessary. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. A delightful and necessary holiday from common sense. Uh, so that, yeah, that takes us up into, I guess more modern era and then there's this question of you know people still dispute whether um jane austen is really a romance writer i think that's quite funny um i would say wuthering heights by emily bronte is an obvious romance novel Um, yeah gothic romance right yeah it's yeah and tragic but so it doesn't have the happy ending the happy ending actually came with another writer 
a writer I wasn't aware of. So, um, but people who are fans of romance will know the name Kathleen Woodowis. She wrote a book or published a book in 1972 called The Flame and the Flower. And it was the first modern bodice ripper. You may wonder what a bodice ripper is. I wasn't sure. I know, I know that you rip the bodice off and you probably can work it out from there, but I didn't. It's the first romance novel to follow the principal characters into the bedroom and see what they get up to. Wow. When you said bodice ripper, I heard Jack the Ripper and I was like, what? What is this? <laughs> well, I guess he was <laughs> ripping bodices, but not in the romantic <laughs> way. Uh, yeah. I'm sure there's a subgenre now of Jack the Bodice Ripper novels. And if there isn't, by all means, people take them, make your fortune. Yeah, run with the idea, make it your own. Make it your own. Uh, Woodowis and Rosemary Rogers were two really important figures. Her second novel was The Wolf and the Dove. And Rosemary Rogers wrote a couple called Sweet Savage Love and Dark Fires. Are you noticing anything about these titles? I'll give them to you again. So we have The Flame and the Flower. That's a really important key book in, in the romance, modern romance genre. The Flame and the Flower. The Wolf and the Dove. Sweet Savage Love and Dark Fires. So there's reference to fire in both, but there's this juxtaposition between something that's going to destroy something else. Yes. It's really interesting, isn't it? Sweet, savage love particularly gave me a giggle. I guess savage love could be sweet, but not really in any sense that I would understand as sweetness. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, the flame and the flower and, and so forth. Um, and I think this might mean something. Uh, I sense that it does, that there is a contradiction built into this holiday from common sense, I think, might be defined by this contradiction between a sort of a sweetness and a savagery, a, a light and dark. Yeah. Now, I say this okay. as someone who has not read a lot of romance novels, so I'm swinging in the dark you, i may you catch said fire. last week you're swinging for romance so i'm swinging for <laughs> yeah i do like that <laughs> swinging for romance i have more stuff to tell you do you want some stats now so i've done a yeah. lot of research because i don't know a lot about this subject uh i've done a lot of research so there'll be fewer errors in this podcast than ever before <laughs> um now, this was a. I found this in a blog post uh, from the University of Michigan. Uh, a writer, Lauren Day, is so just giving her her due because she's put a lot of work into this. But here's some facts. She says, I'll bombard you with a few facts. According to Publishers Weekly, 21.5 million romance books sold in uh, 2017. This was 15.4% of all adult fiction. Falling wow. behind general fiction, which is, wow. a, which is a weird one, which got 29.2%, and suspense thrillers, which got 157 So there's nothing in that. A survey funded by the Romance Writers of America found that the gender breakdown of readers was 82% female, 18% male, and the average reader's age was sort of in their late 30s, although I'm not sure that's 
tremendously interesting. They mention uh, Samuel Richardson's Pamela or Virtue Rewarded from 1740 as the first romance novel, but I think we know that's not really true, although it might be a step in, in, in the direction towards modern romance. Mills and Boone. Quick bit on Mills and Boone, formed in 1908. What? Uh, yeah, in Before the UK. World War Two. Yeah, I know. It's interesting, isn't no, it? No, World War One. And then Harlequin. And, you know, we talk about Harlequin romances. It's become a generalized term. But Harlequin was a Canadian publisher, and they started in 1949, and they – started publishing Mills and Boone's titles as Harlequin titles. You know, they were sort of working cooperatively. And then Harlequin uh, merged with Mills and Boone. So it's just one huge power publisher and they pretty much have, they have the market. So it was Woodwiss that, that added this extra very important thing in 1972, which is the happy ending. Everything tied up in a nice pink bow at the end, no matter what else is happening. And that was the, and the pink bow motif is, is very much what people are trying for when they write romance fiction today. All the disparate elements, nah, like that. Okay. So what you're saying is that Mills and Boone and Harlequin, 1908 and 1949, they did not have the happy ending that was introduced until 1972. That surprises me. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? So that's a bit of a background. I, I've got a few other things to talk about, but I feel like I should hand over to you now because I've been doing the Western tradition um, and you were looking a bit more into the Eastern tradition. And uh, I feel yeah. this is going to lead to a question of how is romance different to erotica and figures like Aeneas Nin and how she is not seen as a romance writer and why that is. But first, over to you. Um, Well, possibly. I did go down the rabbit hole of Japan and very quickly scared myself. But given the figures that you've just said, romance is the biggest selling genre out there. And given the quote that you gave, it makes sense. So people. Not quite. Suspense just edged it. Oh, Just edged it. And general fiction doubled it but general fiction i mean is that a genre that? that's, that's getting silly so as a genre i agree it's it's just in second place um by half a million titles which is not that many yeah well yeah. what i'm trying to say there is that there's a lot of people searching for that delightful escape from common sense and mm. given the age group that you gave even though you don't think it makes a lot of sense in your 30s and your late 30s you've left university or you've left your educational process, you're now in the deep grind of reality, you've potentially got a mortgage, you've got kids, your husband works late um, or your partner works late. So what, what is there left to do? Yeah, that's right. You've, got, you've, you've seen the, uh, you've seen you've the seen non-ideal reality. man. <laughs> yeah. And he's been grumpling around and you want someone who, you know, has a smooth uh, golden tan chest that's never going to sun age and some terrific abs. Undulating abs. Right? Like Fabio. Yeah. (laughs) And And yeah, a very sexy Spanish or Italian name. Because when you look at your husband's stomach, you think to yourself, I can't believe it's not butter. 
because that's what it looks like. Just a big wad of melted butter. Okay, I'm just going to leave that there for a while to (laughs) melt. (laughs) Yeah, just let that melt a bit more. And the bodice rippers. So uh, Japan, that rabbit hole I went down, and I think that is kind of a connection in terms of the current romance that we have at the moment. In Japan, in the uh, early period, they were heavily influenced by Chinese um, culture and literature, and women were the main writers and poets of the time because they had the time to do that. And uh, a lot of comments were coming out, especially the book of uh, Genji, where Mm. the engagement between a male and female was that the male would impose himself upon the woman. They would love a bit of a struggle. The more struggle, the more uh, attractive it was. Uh, the deed would be done. And then in the morning, the male would send a morning after letter asking whether they could continue their uh, love twists. Uh, So the struggle was, uh, can I use the word foreplay? It's made me feel very uncomfortable, but that was essentially kind of what was happening there uh, in that time period. And if you look into the common or modern romance now, there is that – especially in terms of erotica, there is that push and pull or that fight where you kind of want the male protagonist to want it so bad that they're willing to break some boundaries to get to that level. Uh, So I don't know if that's something that has followed along, uh, especially in the Eastern culture. So there must be a similar mirror between both the Western and the Eastern. Mind you, I am talking only about Japan at this stage. Well, Japan was more like the vulgar tongue, wasn't it? Because as I understand it, um, Japanese scholars would write in Chinese. It was their Latin. Yes. So there is that parallel immediately between between the high and the low arts. Mm. So the court ladies would be writing in Japanese. Mm. Um, The vulgar tongue, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the more educated men would be writing in Chinese. So that's a good point that you've just made. Uh, and I do want to talk about Korean modern romances, but I think we could uh, go on to that a bit later. Okay. So I guess now would be a good time to mention Sir Gareth. Sir Gareth is a scullery boy, which is why I'm always so messy looking. Sir Gareth is a scullery boy, and uh, a noblewoman called Lynette goes to the court of King Arthur. This is in uh, La Morte d'Arthur uh, when, you know, Mallory misspells the name and we get the name Gareth. Uh, and she says, I need a knight. My, uh, my sister Leonis has, has been captured by this dark knight. Uh, who have you got? And there's just nobody available. And so the scullery boy goes, excuse me, sir, I could do it. And Arthur is so impressed by his bravery and, you know, good pan cleaning skills that he knights him Sir Gareth and says, here you are. This is a knight. Go take this scullery boy and he'll go get it done for you. And so they go on an adventure and she's very unimpressed with him. And they have a lot of barbed moments, but again and again, he shows what a tough scullery boy he is. And then he fights the, the, the black knight or he might've been the red knight. I can't remember. He was, you know, they always, all the bad guys always pimp their armor in one color. 
They pimp yeah. their armor and I think I just knocked my microphone. Never mind. They pimp their armor in one color and then they just become the, you know, whatever. I'd be the purple knight, I think, or the mauve knight. Um, but Gareth defeats well, you the are dark knight. The red shirt. I know, right? Well, this was the most romantic color I had. Ah, okay. Yeah, I didn't want to go all Star Trek like you. Oh, my God, I'm wearing the red shirt. They're the ones that die in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, so so essentially what we have there is we have the more accessible love interest, that's Lynette, and then Leonis is even more beautiful than Lynette possibly, but she, you never really get a sense of her. She's always just up in the tower looking beautiful and tragic. And the story ends with, you know, maybe Gareth went off with Lynette. Maybe he went off with Leonas. I like to think he went off with both of them. But effectively, that's the story. And so you have the uh, – so so in this narrative, if we take it over to Star Wars, um, uh, Leia is Gareth. Uh, now, she has Luke, who she's traveling around with, and he is the more accessible one. But – Arguably, and no offense to Mark Hamill, not as good looking as Harrison Ford, who is more remote. He's more remote because he's, you know, a bit of a dick and <laughs> pushes him further away. But, you I know, love you. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Uh, which was Harrison Ford's own idea, um, which is lovely. Was it? Yeah, the, he had to say, I love you back, and it just kept bombing. And they were trying it in a zillion different ways. And then finally he just went, I know. And they went, yes, that's the one. Perfect line. Um, that feels important to note because you could say that Star Wars is on some level a romance adventure. It reminds me of Shrek. <laughs> Tell me more. So, I mean, surely you've seen Shrek. Look, I haven't. Um, oh, see, you're the, Gareth, you're the Gareth, accessible Gareth. one that the audience goes, you know, we like her. And then I'm the the one that just goes, I don't know about modern life, but I can tell you about, you know, 12th century romance. That's okay, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't need to explain it to the audience because I guarantee they've seen it, but I'll explain it to you. Explain it to me. Basically, a whole bunch of fairy creatures uh, infest Shrek's swamp, which is his home. You could call them Ewoks if you want, Gareth. Mm. Come on. Um so Shrek goes on an adventure to save the princess to get his swamp back. Uh, obviously, Shrek is an ogre, so he's a scullery guy called Gareth. Mm. And um, through the adventure of saving the princess and taking her back to unaccessible, inaccessible Lord Farquaad, who's far away and is a lord in a big, tall castle, Fiona falls in love with Shrek. Because he is charming, he eats flies, uh, all the things that Fiona secretly wants to do. Mm. He boils uh, frog soup, you know, rotisserie rat. Uh, anyway, so it seems to be a similar trope. This uh, It's almost like the love triangle again, mm. uh, but you have young adult fiction where the love triangle is typically the best friend who has loved the main girl character forever. Accessible Enter person. In yeah, but then it doesn't end up well for the best friend. All men know that you don't want to be called, hey, I see you as a friend. The friend yeah, zone. Like, no, no. Sorry. Well, the Choosing the uh, less accessible character. Yeah, when did which, that happen? Oh, I think that was quite common in the medieval romances. It could go either way. Okay. Um, 
So, for example, we have a love triangle uh, effectively between Guinevere, Arthur, and Lancelot. Uh, Lancelot wins in a sense, although he ends up doesn't he end up killing himself? And Guinevere ends up in a convent, and Arthur ends up just an old grey bearded man in a red t shirt, being bitter about Star Wars. So, yes, it's uh, it's it's an old idea, but it's a great idea, and that's why. It continues to be popular. Yeah. I ran across a rather interesting article in The Conversation, which I recommend to people. It's called, it's the Friday Essay, um, which is a regular thing in The Conversation. Romance Fiction Rewrites the Rule Book. So in the first half hour of this chat, I've been putting a lot of work into saying romance fiction is great. Uh, You know, don't. Don't just go around knocking the romance fiction. And it's, yeah, it's worth noting that, you know, romance fiction is part of a tradition of pulps, which includes mystery and science fiction, pulp, pulp fiction. To a large extent, however, mystery and sci-fi pulp no longer exists. It's not that easy to pick up a little journal in your local supermarket with sci-fi stories in them. You can, however, find romance novels, and they are essentially pulp fiction. They're churned out very fast um, because people will want a new one every week. Uh, so, And the whole pulp thing just refers to the quality of the paper. And as modern people, we do want these books to be published on the worst paper possible, don't we? Because we don't want to be tearing down forests. So no insult in calling it pulp fiction whatsoever. There were a whole bunch of other things that occurred, like, you know, like, for example, when Fabio, I can't believe it's not butter, when he started, uh, they would get him posing with all these gorgeous women and he'd get to spend the afternoon kissing and fondling them. Great, great times. And then at a certain point, he'd show up and, they'd, and he'd be like, where are the ladies? And, they, and the photographer would say, no ladies, just you. And apparently at that point, his job got a lot less interesting. Um, The reason for this is because the publishers realized that they were catering in part to a male gaze. And in fact, women didn't want to read a romance novel with a woman on the front. They wanted to imagine themselves in that position. And so we just need Fabio on his own showing his abs, which do not look like melted butter. Uh, and, and that was one of the shifts that occurred, I think, around the 90s. I think it was, 80s, 90s. 19- so was he kind of like leaning back and like lifting his shirt and showing his abs? Yeah, or basically, the- or looking tortured, you know, tortured but, oh. but muscular, uh, thoughtful but <laughs> ripped. That deep gaze into the horizon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I thought there was some really, really fascinating stuff, though, in this article, Fiction Rewrites. The rule book, I think this is very true and and very useful, and I've never heard this before. So this is a quote. Genre fiction can be understood as having three dimensions. The textual dimension is what happens on the page. The industrial dimension is how the books are produced. And the social dimension is the people who write, read, and talk about the genre fiction. I think that's extremely profound and worth remembering. And I feel like we're going to talk about this more um, in subsequent 
episodes. I know I'm going to bang on about it because I think that makes a lot of sense. In, in this article, when they're talking about rewriting the rule book, they, they have five things that they say have been dynamic about romance fiction in the modern era. So I'm just going to share these with you because this goes from fascinating and laudable to problematic. Yeah. So number one, romance is at the forefront of digital innovation. And so basically the reason for that is that ebooks have taken off romance ebooks are the largest growing area of ebook publishing, far surpassing all the others. Um, and in the ebooks, uh, there is the possibility of messing with the genre a bit more because there is currently a view in publishing that ebooks are not as important, not as permanent, and things can occur. Um, now, I don't think it's true that they're not as important or as permanent. Uh, however, it, maybe that belief does underpin this idea that things can occur, risks can be taken, and that is a good thing. Mm. So I think number one's right. What do you think? Are we, is- yeah, so the author of Fifty Shades of Grey, she started off as an ebook publisher. I would say her novels were quite risky. There was quite a different story, a bit of BNSM um, whips and tying up facts. But publishers noticed that uh, whatever formula she was using was working and now she uh, got a publishing deal from that. Yeah, so yeah. I agree. Yeah. Romance readers are active and engaged. This is their second proposition. And their argument is this. It's not just consumerism. It's not just because you get a book a week. People run blogs. They do podcasts. I mean, who does podcasts? Uh, and these are all active things. These are active. You know, they, they show genuine engagement. It's not just something to consume. So it's more than a guilty pleasure. And that it's a shared pleasure. It's it's a community thing. People are making meaning together. That is true. I was recently talking to a friend this morning about one of our favourite uh, novels, Sean, Sarah J. Mars. Uh, it's fantasy with very much built-in romance formula. And, you know, we are making meaning together and talking about it. So I do think... There is that a societal or shared element of romance. Not a lot of people read other books that I read. So Isaac Asimov, who talks about that anymore. Mm, that's sad. I Asimov's know. great. And, of course, he was mixing things like uh, mystery and sci-fi and doing a lot of that sort of stuff. And he wrote mm. in the pulps uh, in, yeah. in his early days. So very much uh, – an appropriate writer to mention in this context. That was point two. Point three is that romance fiction is global. Now, this is a very interesting one. So, basically, London and New York are major publishing centers. And if you're an Australian writer, it is harder to get your work out to a global audience through those channels. Mm. This is this is absolutely true. Um. We all need to move to London and New York, just crowd the place, all the cafes writing stuff and try and get published locally because that that is the way forward at the current time. But not in the romance genre. 
In the romance genre, being from Australia is fantastic, particularly if you want a German readership. They have uh, a name for the romance novels that come from Australia called the Australian Roman. Uh, they probably say it in a much better way. They probably shout it, don't they? Australian Roman. <laughs> uh, but yes, and, and these rural, rural romances called Ruros. 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 Yeah. You know, Jono wrote a Ruro, right? Uh, they're really big. And it's not hard to get these works uh, international exposure for whatever reason, the readership the romance readership uh, are very open to to other other writing scenes, so that's yeah. another fantastic aspect. That's point three of five. Oh, there's five points. I there's thought there was points. only three. No, alas, there should have only been three because now we get into the problematic section. Okay. Point four: romance can be socially progressive. Now. Mm. Now, <laughs> let me just read you the first uh, three again, just the, the titles. Romance is at the forefront of digital innovation. Yes. Number two, romance readers are active and engaged. Yes. Number three, romance fiction is global. Yes, indeed. And when we get to point four, romance can be socially progressive. In other words, it has the potential to be socially progressive, which is a weird claim. You know, I have the potential to look like Fabio, but do I? Bit odd. Now, Jermaine Sorry, were you Greer, wanting me to follow up with a, a, a nice, generous comment? Oh, please do. The, as our accessible podcaster. Oh, I think when your hair is out, you definitely have that Fabio look. That's what we wanted to hear. Um <laughs> So Jermaine Greer in The Female Eunuch dismissed romance fiction as women cherishing the chains of their bondage. How do we feel about that? Uh, people who are listening on the podcast, I'm pulling a face, purse <laughs> lips. Um, I don't know what I think about that. So you've got that uh, statement being compared to the previous one, romance is a delightful way to escape from common sense. I don't, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, though? I mean, that was 50 years ago, so it's an old quote, to be fair. But, I mean, Jermaine Greer is still kicking around. I think she would probably stand by that quote, not to put words in her mouth, but I suspect she might. Yeah. Um, and so we, we run into this issue. We have genre norms, but there is also a drive to recognize the Me Too movement and the heroine's uh, bodily autonomy and and things like that. And just, you know, the shape of modern feminism. Does romance fiction fit that? I have no answer to this because I'm not a big romance reader, but I know you read a bit of romance. So I put that question to you. Are romance books becoming more progressive? Because they can be, but what we're not getting is are they actually becoming more progressive? So I don't read pulp romance, and I think that dynamic is quite different to uh, when romances meld in, into other genres, so action, 
adventure, fantasy and so forth. With the romance in fantasy, I think this idea of romance and the want to be desired, you want someone to push the boundaries. In books now, women do have a lot more autonomy. They a lot more powerful um, characters or protagonists. But I still think in that romance, the reason why they're so popular is because women still want men to take the lead on in, on the instigation. Is that still being shackled to this whole old concept? No, because I do think women are the gatekeepers to any interactions that do occur. Well, now that's interesting. We, yeah, we ultimately still hold the power. Okay, because point five is romance has gates that are kept. Oh, okay. What's that point? So I'll just, I'm just going to quote this. Uh, mm-hmm. Romance fiction is more progressive than some stereotypes might suggest, but it is not free from exclusion or discrimination. The genre is influenced by its gatekeepers, human and digital. One form of gatekeeping takes place through the same voluntary associations that nurture community. In late 2019, the Board of Romance Writers of America censured prominent writer of color, Courtney Milan, suspending her from the organization for a year and banning her from leadership positions for life. The decision was made following complaints by two white women, author Catherine Lynn Davis and publisher Susan Tisdale, about statements Milan made on Twitter, including calling a specific book, uh, quote, fucking racist mess. So there's some gatekeeping there. I mean, I don't know. Uh, that's just that's one example. I could make a statement and say, uh, given how popular romance is on the digital format, you're reaching a whole different set of audience, a whole different crowd. And I can give a hundred examples of where romance is running away from those gatekeepers in terms of the publishers, especially with our self-published novels. To me, that just sounds like, oh, I got, I've got got an example from 2019. I'm going to throw it in here to support my point of view. Um, yeah, That's well, what that feels like to me. But if you take it out of this context, I think it would be a far bigger scandal outside of the romance genre world. Uh like if you say put it in the area of film, American film, and mm. a black director criticised a white director's treatment of people of colour and the Academy banned the black director for using the F word and, uh, you know, or maybe the R word, I'm not sure which word bothered them more. I think that would be a big thing. It's interesting to me that that wasn't, a bigger thing, you know, like my, my, my limit for this is if I've heard of it, you know, I'm hiding under my 12th century books that it was a big thing. And I had never heard of this before. So I guess what I'm saying is perhaps within the sort of, maybe there is a, a degree of conservatism, um, a less progressive edge to it that allows for these arguments to sort of, um, and I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing because I have absolutely no idea. I know in this sort of uh, sort of culture of outrage that we have, I'm surprised is all I'm saying that that wasn't a bigger news story. Yeah, 
you know, in part, I'm glad that it wasn't a bigger news story because I think we do live in a culture of outrage and it all gets exhausting. But on the other hand, but the romance writers of America, what were they doing? Uh, You know, I mean, because we're not talking about defamation. I mean, we might, I don't know, there could be a defamation case in place, dragging on, making the lawyers lots of money. But the romance writers of America came in and said, right, we're taking action for this terrible crime of slander. Yeah, that's really bizarre. It is. And it's very problematic, I think, Mm. uh, in terms of the players involved. So I don't, you know, I don't know what the right answer is, but I, I can certainly see that something feels out of kilter with the the shape of modern society and the way people generally behave these days. And one last thing that's worth noting about this genre is um, that the constraints within it, the formula. You know, we've talked about literary constraints in a previous episode or possibly in several previous episodes, like and subscribe and comment, comment folks. We love comments. Um, And a formula, a constraint can be a powerful thing to spark creativity. Uh, And so, you know, I think within the very tight formula, they're looking for books that are both incredibly formulaic and original uh, and and so yeah, I could see how within the the romance genre there are some fantastic bits of originality in in terms of work on the page, the textual dimension. Uh, going over to Korea, formula of romance is very different to the Western format. So uh, I watch a lot of Korean dramas online; they're amazing. I highly recommend them. Love in the Korean sense is less erotic. There's no bodice ripping happening. You definitely do not follow the couple into the bedroom. Even uh, making out or having a kiss on the cheek happens halfway through a 20-episode series and you're just hanging on the edge of your seat for that 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 kiss. Oh, it's pretty intense. Um, Korean love and Korean romance, it's this really slow that builds up over time and they have a sense of um, the first your first love being incredibly special so you could have feelings for someone in high school not see them again for 10 years and you see them again and you know it's fated in a sense some of my favorite uh, Korean dramas is The Coffee Prince, Hotel Del Luna and Guardian the Lonely and Great God how each of these series ends, I don't want to, well, I am going to give it away in a sense, but the coffee prince, uh, he falls in love with uh, a waiter at his cafe who turns, ends up being a woman. In the end, he lets her go to Italy for two years to learn to become a barista. So again, there's that letting go of the thing that you love most. Hotel Del Luna, it's about a ghost uh, who's held incredibly long grudge to another person that betrayed her over thousands of years and her job is to walk other ghosts or souls to the underworld by letting them let go of their own grudges. Uh, She gets a worker or hotel manager that helps her work through her own grudge and they fall in love and his final act is to let her go, her soul to finally move on 
and they never see each other again, except uh, reincarnation. And it's a similar story to the lonely and great God. In the Western sense, love is linear, whereas in the Eastern sense, there's this continuing, uh, we're going to see each other again in the next life over and over again. And it's incredibly long wait and patience. It's not, I have to have you right now, which a lot of romance uh, is made up of in our day and age, modern day. <laughs> well played. You were on a tightrope there, but you, you got through it and I'm impressed. <laughs> now, these are series though. These are TV series, yeah? Yes, uh, but a lot of them are based on books, um, manga kind of, not to the same extent as manga, but uh, a book series. Yeah, I understand that's also true. There's, uh, there's a romance tradition in uh, Japanese manga as well. Um, mm. Although, again, they might not be pitched at people like me. Uh, and, and in Korea, of course, the idea of uh, fatalism, like they have the, the day, the choosing day. I'm not quite sure what that's called. Um, where they have a whole bunch of items in front of them as a baby and the one they pick up suggests what they're going to do in life. So they might pick up a pencil, in which case they're going to be a pencil pusher or, or, or a writer, I don't know. Uh, but they, oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tradition, a Korean tradition. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the actual name of it. Um, and, and, and fatalism actually is very much in the Western tradition too. Uh, and, and sort of karmic retribution and, and karmic reward. Um, one of the things that is pretty consistent uh, in early, and I'm talking hundreds of years, early romance up to, to now is the idea of virtue, um, virtue of character, if not the idea of a sort of a, a virginal quality um, which you kind of see in the, uh, I'm getting the sense of it from the um, Korean romances, the sort of a chasteness. Uh, yeah. And the author that you mentioned, uh, The Flame in the Flower, there's this concept that the woman is virtuous, she is chaste, and with that virtue, she is going to change the hardcore dangerous masculine man into a more soft, uh, loving human being. Uh, that's the role of uh, the woman in a lot of these stories. And that's her power, isn't it? Remember we were talking about this idea yeah. a few episodes back that the power lies. Margaret Atwood. Yeah, Margaret Atwood. Yeah. Um, although I, clearly that is shifting in, in various ways. Um, uh, power is being placed into, into different orbits, which is you know, not a bad thing. Um, I, I think, uh, that is a conservative concept and it'll be interesting to see how it survives, uh, our current age and whether romance novels will be recognizable in 20 years time or whether they really will, you know, jump off into all different directions. Okay. Well, I've got one more thing and I, and I, I think this is pretty interesting. Uh, this is from Harper's Bazaar. Um, it's a very recent article and it's called, uh, five new modern romance novels challenging what you thought about love. So I was thinking, you know, we've got this idea that, um, 
modern romance novels are having to change to cope with uh, modern expectations around uh, things like uh, feminism and uh, Me Too and and those sorts of things. So, I my impression is that these books are speaking to that in some way, and the Harper's yeah. Bazaar have listed them. So I'm. I'm just going to read you the intro because it's interesting. For too long, romance novels have been given a bad rap. Part of this is a result of predictable narratives and overused tropes, but part is perhaps due to the fact that they are largely written by women, about women, or enjoyed by women. Romance fiction is one of literature's most commercially successful genres. A Mills and Boone novel is said to be sold every 10 seconds somewhere in the world. And And increased in popularity drastically over the pandemic pandemic in 2021, with sales rising by a whopping 49%. Uh, Today, there are a number of writers not only challenging the snobbery and misogyny that surrounds romance novels, but also how we think of love and relationships. What does love look like today and who should experience it? What do we mean by desire and how far would or should you go to find it? Who deserves a happily ever after? Okay, so we've got five books that they recommend. The first one is called You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweki Emezi. I hope I said that right. Akweki Emezi is already one of literature's buzziest names, thanks to previous books, Freshwater, and The Death of Vivek Oji. But You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty marks their first foray into romance. It tells the story of 20-something widower Fehi as she learns how to live with grief while making herself open to sex and romance again. Her journey of self-discovery takes her from New York to the Caribbean, test-driving various relationships in order to help her find out what it means to be truly alive. Okay. I have something to say, but I'll let you finish the five titles. jump in, because that doesn't sound, uh, based on what I understand about romance novels, I'm I'm not getting it. Isn't that an erotic novel or something else? So as I was doing research for this, I stumbled upon a book called Romance Writing by Lynn Pierce. And I'm going to read a quote out from that, which I thought was really amazing. I begin with the proposition that romantic love is the most singular and most singularly devastating emotion visited upon humankind. Losing our heart to another is indeed the traumatic experience that most defines us that eradicated in an instant the subjects we once were and reincarnates us in another guise. From that fateful moment on, who we are is defined in part by the being we love, even though she slash he is no longer what she slash he was either. So that's very much lover's discourse right there, Mm. which we're going to talk about later on. But uh, So I couldn't get access to this whole book, but I could see the titles of the chapters she wanted to talk about. So romance before the 18th century, and she calls it the gift of a name. And from my sense, that seems to be being able to marry into a proper good family, kind of Jane Austen style. That's what love was, uh, what it represented, security, wealth, and so forth. It could and also it could so also forth. be the gift of a name in the sense of taking on that, that vulgar tongue, the, the non-Latin, non-Chinese. Uh, uh, potentially. Yeah. 
I mean, who knows? Yeah, uh, I'll have to read the book. Courtship Romance, The Gift of Companionship. So I think that as uh, the court period where you develop that relationship and you spend time with them, you get married. Gothic Romance, so Emily Bronte, The Gift of Immortality. So romance is wrapped in, especially at the moment, the vampirism, werewolves, uh, this idea talking about Bella Swan and Edward Cullen again, uh, Love, our love is eternal, and to have that, we have to be immortal together. And the Korean tradition wartime, as well, which you mentioned before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, wartime romance, the gift of self-sacrifice. So romance and what it meant then, uh, being self-sacrifice makes a lot of sense in the wartime, especially when you mentioned that uh, Mills and Boone, 1908, and Harlequin, 1949, just before the war and after World War II. Uh, it seems to be what the tragic ending, we haven't developed into that pretty bow happy ending in 1972. Modern romance now is the gift of selfhood. And this is what I'm thinking is happening with romance. Uh, Sally Rooney, we talked about her book, Normal People, I think it's called, where the main protagonist goes on an adventure of self-discovery, sleeping with a whole bunch of people in college or work or whatever to find herself. The title you've just mentioned is very similar. It's these characters, female characters, to find love, have to love themselves first maybe before they are entitled to romance. Yeah. yeah okay. So that gift of selfhood. So maybe that's a natural progression that we're seeing in the romance genre. And poor old uh, Anais Nin, that was called narcissism and has now been sort of uh, re-understood as um, a quest for the self, agency, and self-appreciation, I suppose, self-respect. Yeah. yeah. So if women are writing this, maybe this is the unshackling that needs to happen for the romance genre to progress. Because mm-hmm. uh, another quote they mentioned was romance is just, uh, I can't even remember the quote. There were shackles involved, oh, shackles, yeah. but not in the BDSM style. Oh, no, no, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, let's see if the rest of these books essentially go along those lines or if they problematize uh, the definition of the genre further. Um, so the second book is called Acts of Service. It's by Lillian Fishman. And the synopsis is, what would happen if we followed our sexual desires without thinking about moral goodness and societal expectations. So I'll just interrupt myself. This is clearly reflecting on the romance genre where uh, moral goodness does seem to be an important factor in, in terms of success. Lillian Fishman's provocative debut, Acts of Service, doggedly pursues this question as she explores sex, power dynamic, and pleasure in one of the most anticipated books of the year. Her unlikely protagonist finds herself cheating on her girlfriend to enter a polyamorous sexual arrangement with a couple she meets online. Boundaries become blurred, moral compasses are ignored, and hedonism is prioritized in this daring novel that is destined to prompt discussion. Are you prompted? Yes. Please be. (laughs) Um, 
I mean, I'm enjoying the fact that the different types of relationships are getting explored in this novel because the concept of monogamy uh, can be considered old-fashioned. Why do we expect, especially uh, I think there's um, five different Greek words for the word love, why do we expect one individual to provide every single aspect or facet of what we think love is now. So you've got sexual love, familial love, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that is the calling card for polyamory or polyamorous relationships. So that is an interesting book. Um, Cheats on a girlfriend though. I mean, it would be a different book surely if she entered this polyamorous relationship from a position of being a single person. Now, the moral goodness is obviously out the window with the cheating. And she doesn't leave a girlfriend. She cheats on a girlfriend. So this is an interesting thing. I wonder how these characters all fit together. All right. Something Fabulous is number three by Alexis Hall. Uh, the stratospheric popularity of Netflix's Bridgerton. Have you watched Bridgerton? Nor have no. I. Indicates that we're all bigger fans of a Regency romance than perhaps we ever thought. Alexis Hall, known already for his witty LGBTQ plus historical romances, offers us two new books this year. The first being Something Fabulous, a fun romp about a gay duke who is betrothed with a twin and enamored by the other. And he also gets husband material, his riff on four weddings and a funeral. These books are not only breaking boundaries and making romance novels more inclusive, but they're also moving, joyful, and irre irrepressibly mood-enhancing. I love the concept of um, engaged to one twin and enamored by the other. That's, I mean, it's your classic love triangle there. All right. Number four, Honey and Spice by Bolu Babalola. Bolu Babalola, oh my God, a self-described rom-commissure, a rom-commissure, has devoured romance stories since she was a teen, finally leading her to write Honey and Spice. The book, which follows the success of her best-selling debut, Love in Colour, Mythical Tales from Around the World Retold, has been dumb, dubbed, has been dubbed, has been dubbed the rom-com of the decade. Don't you love these publishers? They, We're three years oh, in. <laughs> this copy. Oh my God. I'm so sick of it. Oh my God. Do you think the AI will do any better? Because apparently the AI is going to be writing all the copies. So, you know, the AI that we yeah, have I now. You know the AI. I can only hope that it does a better job. Oh my Man. God. Yeah. The rom-com of the decade. It's a sizzling addictive story about a university romance between straight-talking radio show host Kiki and serial casual data Malachi. Babalola aims to normalize positive stories around black women in love and starts her writing process by building a brilliant woman and then moving on to develop a man who is worthy of her. So is it all about his moral goodness at this point? Yes. I mean, that sounds interesting to me. Of the ones that we've discussed thus far, that actually feels potentially uh, like a, 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 an evolution of the genre. Yeah, I agree. So he has to prove himself to her. Mm, 
What an interesting idea. Yeah, I hope it uh, works well in the what she does. Yeah, yeah. That would be one. You know, I'd, I'm not a romance reader. Um, the most modern romance novel that I have read, I think, is Wuthering Heights. However, uh, I would... I would give this book a go. I think it's it sounds interesting. I, I would actually I'm 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 ready to jump on board and give Honey and Spice a go. Well, maybe you should add it to your book review um, instead of reading Aunt Tyler. Maybe I should. Maybe I should. Although I feel sorry for Aunt Tyler. You know, no, no. You know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to read Honey and Spice. But is it actually out in time? That is this actually out yet? I swear I've seen the cover. It's this gorgeous, kind of the same color as my shirt, gorgeous, oh. uh, with black writing, honey and spice. They All could right. be well, wrong. I'm going to be a progressive person and change my mind. Sorry, Ann Tyler. You rock. I love you. Uh, I'm going to give this book a go for the book review. So that, there you go, folks. It's pretty dramatic on this podcast, uh, isn't it? You don't know what's going to happen. No, I don't know. You've been throwing zingers at me and I don't have the perfect <laughs> I have, haven't I? I just went, <laughs> check this out. I did this research. Yeah. Well, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to feel like I took this subject lightly and I know I'm out of my wheelhouse, so I've been trying real hard. Uh, the final title, The Crane Wife, A Memoir in Essays by C.J. Hauser. Yeah. Mm, yeah, okay. So yeah. A Memoir in Essays. Okay. In July 2019, C.J. Hauser published an essay in the Paris Review. Oh, what do you know? Oh, okay. Yeah, London, New York, and of course they didn't mention Paris, but yes, London, New York, Paris, the centres of publishing. An essay in the Paris Review about travelling to study whooping cranes 10 days after calling off her wedding and why she chose to end that engagement. So potent were her observations on modern love that the piece went viral. Now the author and professor has launched an unflinchingly honest and confessional debut collection of essays in which she dissects her most meaningful relationships. Hauser deconstructs truths and mistruths about desire, love, and traditional narratives of happiness in this warm book that is for anyone who wants to add a a plot twist to their life story. Now, Is Hauser female? Uh, yes, yes, she is, yes. Sounds like the female version of a lover's discourse. I mean, a little bit. Um, and again, I, I hear Anais Nin floating through with her her own memoirs. Yeah, memoirs. Which apparently are not part of the romance genre. So this one's getting in. I feel like Anais is going to be raised up as the godmother of modern romance fiction because she's just knocking knocking these out of the park. Um, yeah. And we should read Delta of Venus uh, at some point as one of our book reviews because very interesting. Maybe next year. So many books to read. What do you think? Instead of we'll, we'll go down the, the erotica aisle next February. Yeah, we'll be, we'll okay, be hanging we'll around those dodgy dark bookshops with our overcoats on, <laughs> smuggling. Well, you will be. I'll be welcome with open arms into the community. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I'll just be outside <laughs> in my trench coat. People will be like, "I hope he's dressed under there." Um, so yeah, is that? I mean, 
that feels like a stretch. Now I know this is just Harper's bizarre Harper Bazaar's uh, opinion. Mm. However, they have a certain readership. That readership possibly includes uh, readers of romance. They may be influenced. They may say, yes, this is happening. But why would it be happening? How is this? It's obviously not fiction. So let's say it's not romance fiction. It's romance nonfiction. Is that part of the broader genre? Should it be? What do you think? I just have to answer with, I don't know. These are all very different I mean, you say that you've been uh, hiding under your 12th century romance novels. Uh, I think we're entering very new territory in terms of what the romance book is going to look like, what it is slowly turning into. And these all sound incredibly different to what I'm used to. Um, So I think we should head into wrapping up. Mm -hmm. But before we go, uh, I do want to talk about Romance Writers of Australia. So this is, uh, they are in partnership with Romance Writers of America uh, in a sense, but um, they have a 2023 conference coming up the 11th to the 13th of August and it will be in Sydney. But the reason I want to bring them up is because they have a competition that is running in the month of February. So we are obviously doing romance for our uh, February and we're going to be joining their creative writing competition. So this is the first KISS Award and it's opening on the 6th of February and closing on the 27th of February. It's one scene up to 1,500 words max depicting the first kiss between your protagonists. It's an entry fee of $39 and judged by Lex Hurst from Pantera Press. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. So we're going to enter that, are we? Yes, we're going to be doing creative writing exercise and entering into that. And the contest winners are presented at that conference gala awards dinner in August in Sydney. Oh my, that does sound very exciting. Well, I think we should all enter it. Are we going to enter? We're going to enter a joint entry though, aren't we? Is that what we were talking about? No, we're going to join separately. Oh, I thought we were going to do a joint entry. we're going to do write one and edit it and give feedback on uh, one of the uh, podcasting days we have in February. And we would uh, want this to be a collaborative experience. So uh, listeners, let's do it together. Let's just bombard Romance Writers Australia with new, exotic, very different romance that they've never seen before. Let's break those boundaries. Oh, my God. That does sound really exciting. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Although I I would like to pitch the idea that we write a piece together. And if people want to comment, add some sections, um, we will add your name to it if we include them. Let's let's create okay, a group piece. Uh, let's let's do a collective. Let's do a polyamorous writing exercise <laughs> where lots of people I are can involved. Create a Google Doc, and I will post it on our Facebook group, The Pleasure of the Text, and people can comment and let's create a Frankenstein romance scene of the first kiss. I think that's very exciting. Let's not do a Frankenstein theme, though, because we don't want any disembodied No, no, no. Oh, damn it. That's right up my genre. (laughs) (laughs) No, that one's out. All right. Wow. (laughs) All right. Wow, that was a big uh, podcast. And next week we are 
What are we talking about? Oh, week? well, no. Okay, so next week we're going to review A Lover's Discourse. Now, for those of you who shy away from review episodes because we're full of spoilers, yes, we will be spoiling everything. However, the wonderful thing about A Lover's Discourse is it is a collection of fragments that are fictive but not fiction. Uh, so we can't spoil the plot for you, but hopefully we can get you very excited about it as a book. It's one of my absolute favorite books of all time, uh, right in the top five. Um, I'm very excited for us to be talking about it. So yeah, come along for that one. It's going to be great fun. And if you've ever been in love or been uh, heartbroken, this is the book to have. When your heart is broken, this book will draw you out of yourself, not because it offers any suggestions, but because it offers insight. Mm. And we're probably going to be starting the first paragraph or two of that writing exercise after the review segment. Yes. Yeah, we'll make it a bit of a mixed thing. And then, of course, the week after that, we will be doing writing a sex scene. Ah, yes. Okay, cool. There's so much to look forward to in February. I'm excited. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. We won't obviously enter the sex scene into the competition, but it may help to shape our kiss scene in certain ways. Well, we can because they do have another competition called Spicy Bites Short Stories. Spicy Bites is for erotic short stories that use the theme as an integral part of the story, which have a high heat level with sexually explicit scenes. Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so – I know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't want to collaborate on that yeah, one. Yeah, let's not. That that, that feels weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we should, okay. we should wrap this up in a nice pink bow now and uh, and say goodbye, folks. Bye, folks. We'll see you next week on The it. Pleasure of the Text. Bye.